Well, the truth is, <laughs> Mark and I, we are, uh, we're very appreciative of you. We, we receive praise all year long because we're the people up front. And uh, if you think about um, how when you come in, it's all clean. Who does that? You don't know about the things in the facility that break be repaired. Who does that? And so there's out on the wall, as Paul said, there's pictures of all of our staff and all the people that make things happen. We have the easy job. And so uh, they're the ones that are just quietly in the background. And they just appreciate your prayers and your, your words of encouragement. So thank you. Okay, before we start today, some of you heard that uh, Haiti had an earthquake last night. Uh, another one. Their last one was in 2010, the real big one. And uh, this one isn't as big, but it's uh, closer to home. We do ministry in Capetian up north. And it's about 10 or 12 miles west of where we do ministry. So I was actually, uh, when I went to bed last night, around 10 o'clock, I saw it on the news. So I started texting with Pastor Bob there, uh, who runs the Haitian Christian Ministries in Haiti. And um, so we texted for quite a while. And he said he doesn't know of any, anybody that's died, but it, it brings back all of the, the, the fears of what happened. In the last one, they had over 200,000 die. The last I heard, there was 12, but it's still a nightmare for them. And so I told him that we would be praying for him as a church. They pray for us, so it's our turn to pray for them. So let's stop and lift up the churches there. Father, we we recognize that there are many things going on in the world, in our own country, that we could bring to your attention. We know that. Um, but we're thankful that you're an omniscient God, and you know all those things. So what we'd like to bring to you today, what's on our hearts, is our friends and our our fellow Christians in Haiti that we know and love have been working with for 10, 12, 14 years. Father, I don't know what it's like to go through a major earthquake, uh, but they do. They've been there. And so I could understand why they would be a little terrorized and traumatized by it. So I pray for them. I pray that your spirit would be strong to give them strength. I pray for Pastor Bob and all the other pastors in the area. I pray, Lord, that you would um, you would bless them today as they minister to their flocks and uh, help them with words of comfort and wisdom. And, and I pray that uh, your spirit would be in their lives of those churches in new and fresh ways that they haven't seen before. And uh, Father, perhaps that this would uh, this act of God would draw them closer to you, Lord. And um, that many who don't know you, because there are so many there, would turn to you. Thank you for your goodness to them, for loving them. Thanks for being gracious to them. In your son's name, amen. Okay, we're in the Sermon on the Mount, and we're calling it the Great Reversal. We named it that way during the amphitheater when we looked at the Beatitudes, which is the first section of the Sermon on the Mount. And there we argued that the world uh, had developed a sense of looking down on certain characteristics of humanity, the poor and all of that. And uh, they were, they, those were the qualities of humanity that, uh, that they despised. They had defined a sense of what, su- what success looks like, and it didn't include the people down at the bottom. So Jesus comes along in the, great, in the Beatitudes and says, no, those are actually the people that we should honor. Those are the people who are blessed. Those are the people who understand the grace of God better than anyone else. If you speak to any missionary or you read any missionary biographies or stories, you'll soon see a pattern that wherever they go in the world, the poor are the first to, usually the first to respond because they have the most to gain. 
At least in their minds, they do. And they're usually the loudest voice for the kingdom. So they're the ones who have the most energy and spread the word about who Jesus is. And so that's what Jesus is saying. That's why I called it the great reversal, because the people that culture looks down on are the ones that we should be honoring. And those are the ones who Jesus says are blessed. Well, he didn't stop there. He goes right into the Sermon on the Mount. And when he gets to the Sermon on the Mount, he's taking people, his people, but I would argue he's taking the whole world where they've never gone before. He's introducing to them uh, values that they had not seen before, that they had not even thought of. So beginning with the Sermon on the Mount, we've got to remember that Jesus is announcing the kingdom of God. That's what he says in chapter 4, verse 23. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And then he starts with the Beatitudes and moves right into the Sermon on the Mount. So he goes further and explains that they're the salt and the light. As soon as he finishes the Beatitudes, he says, you are the salt and the light. So the, the people that culture typically looks down on and typically despises or, you know, I'm glad I'm not like them. Those are the ones that actually are the salt and the light of the earth. They're the ones who spread the kingdom the news of the kingdom. There's no billboard out there that says God is glorious. There's no plane flying with a banner overhead. The people that God uses are the people that typically the world looks down on. And uh, that's many of you. I would say it's our, all of us. We are the salt and light of the earth. So beginning with the Sermon on the Mount, he's starting to do something different. He's beginning to um, help us understand what the law was all about. Remember the law is captured in the first five books. We call that the Pentateuch or the Torah. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That captures the the law of Moses, if you will. And uh, one of my favorite things to do, I said this last week, one of my favorite things to do in the classroom is ask the students, so what do you think of uh, the law? What adjectives would you use to describe it? And they usually come up with negative, critical, or pejorative terms. It's harsh, it's, it's unbending and flexible, all of that sort of stuff. And I said, really? Well, then I wonder why all the New Testament authors use language like perfect, holy, right, good grace to describe the law. They didn't have that perspective at all. They saw it as grace. And it makes a lot of sense when you remember that in the ancient world, everybody's trying to figure out what the gods think. And there's no way to know. Uh, We now know that there are no gods. They're false gods except for the one true God. So the one true God spoke into our world and gave the law. And so they gave it to Moses. And that was a wonderful thing because they no longer had to guess. So I tell people that there's 613 commands in the classroom. The students go, wow, that's a lot. You think so? Look at any church. Look at the unwritten laws. Doesn't take much to trip over one, does it, in many churches? We are people who appreciate laws. <laughs> we love them. That's how we control things. And so he's going to bring up the Torah, and he's going to live it out. He's going to um, demonstrate what it looks like. He's going to actualize it. He's going to make it real. He's going to give us a model of what the Old Testament demanded that we could never fulfill. That's what he does. But he doesn't do away with it. In fact, he says not one stroke of the letter will be done away until all is accomplished. So the law is still present. So as he begins to unpack the what we see as a Sermon on the Mount, what he's doing is he's going back to the law and fleshing these out in more uh, contemporary, more relevant language to the first century. So this is a great reversal. He's going to recalibrate our sense of what the law is all about in its purpose. So then why does it begin with the bad news? That's where he starts. The bad news. 
You've heard it said not to commit adultery. I tell you, if anyone lusts after a woman, and we could say a man, he's committed adultery in his heart already. So he starts with the bad news. I think what we begin to learn with the Sermon on the Mount is several key principles. One is behavior is not as important as the heart. Now, behavior is important. And most churches, we specialize in looking at behavior, don't we? Which is important. That's not a criticism. It's only a problem if it falls short of what we should be doing. The behaviors are evidences of what's going on inside the person. Now, remember, he's writing in a shame and honor context where behavior was the key. We, they had learned to marginalize just like we do and create their groups. We know who the drug addicts are. We know who the divorcees are. We certainly know who the adulterers are. All right? And so that's the way we're wired to do that. We're just not wired to do it in a very unhealthy way. And so he, um, <clears throat> he's beginning to show us that behavior is simply an evidence of what's going on inside. So many of you, have, uh, we've had coffee together. And some of you are struggling with sin. All of you are, but some of you have told me about it. <laughs> and... Uh, and several of you have asked the question, so why are you, why are you responding that way? Why, are you, why did you choose anger? Why that choice? You could have laughed. You could have got discouraged. What made you choose anger? And so my goal is not to shame you. I never want to shame anybody or condemn or judge. I leave that up to the Holy Spirit. That's his job. What I'm interested in by asking the questions is what's going on behind the eyeballs that the behavior is expressing something deeper that's a hurt, a wound, a break, a sin, whatever you want to call it. And so when we have coffee, you have nothing to be afraid of. It's an exploratory process. I really want to know what's going on on the inside because that's where redemption occurs. So when Jesus took the discussion and moved it back to the interior of the person, that had to happen because redemption on the cross occurs on the inside, it's the heart. And if you live in a culture where the inside of the person is not important, only the outside, he had to move the discussion to the interior of the person. And so redemption occurs on the inside. The ultimate expression finds itself in behaviors. So behavior is just an evidence that something's going on, good or bad. And so when we're together and, and you're struggling with something, I can ask those questions. Uh, not Again, not meaning to drive shame, but to learn what the process is that God is working on on the inside. Because then I know how to help you and others know how we can help in that situation. So Jesus is helping us to understand that what's in the heart is really the most important. That's where to- total depravity actually occurs is inside. Our behavior is an expression of that. But what if something even more wonderful is happening here with the Sermon on the Mount? I think several other things are happening. He's casting the net very, very wide to incorporate everybody. That's the first thing. That's the good news. We're in it together. Like I said, we know how to identify the drug addicts and the alcoholics and the adulterers. We're good at that. So what we tend to do is we identify them so that we're not like them. It's in us. Then what Jesus is doing is he's casting the net very, very wide. Said, no, we're all in this together. If anyone is lusted after a person, they're guilty of adultery. Okay, I'm just telling you I'm guilty. I'm guilty. I suspect most of you are, if not all of you are as well. So he casts the net wide. The second thing he does is he elevates sin Uh, and the demands of a righteous God to an impossible level. Because later on, he's going to say, and Paul's going to say, don't you know that adulterers do not inherit the kingdom of God? And yet that's what all of us are. 
So he's not, he's not making it easy. He's making it impossible. It's not even challenging. He's making it impossible. None of us can meet the righteous standards of God. That is impossible. Paul stated it very clearly by quoting the Old Testament. Romans 3, there is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who does for good, who does good, not even one. And you can't get any clearer than that. And where does that come from? He's looking at the teachings of Jesus, so reflecting back on the Old Testament. Paul quoted the Old Testament. So Jesus isn't making it challenging. He's making it impossible. That's what he's doing. He's raising the standard of what the law required to help us understand exactly what God, a righteous God, demands. So that leaves us only two options. Hopelessness or grace and forgiveness. So what Jesus did was he set the stage, the world stage, for the cross. Understand? That's what he did. So let's not water it down. Let's not water sin down. Let's leave it as sin. Because the moment you normalize it, redemption is no longer needed. Well, everybody's doing it. I don't care. Alcoholism is a problem. Genetics doesn't matter to me. Still sin. So if we normalize it, the cross is no longer needed. Let's leave sin alone and appreciate the grace that comes through the cross. And let's step across the line into the messiness of people's lives and show them grace. They're an alcoholic? Fine. Alcoholism is sin. Let's step across the line into your life and figure out what that looks like and how to bring about grace and redemption there. I want us to be a redeeming church. That means we have to get involved in the whole messiness of sin. What happens then is as we do that, we begin to see the holy character of God shining through very broken people. That's what happens. Then the world can see the kingdom, the true kingdom for what it is. This is what true holiness is. This is what God intended. So now let's take a look at divorce. Because this is the next topic. Last week was adultery. This week is divorce. Like I said last week, the same is true this week. If you've experienced divorce, my goal is not to drive any guilt or shame. That's not the goal at all. Shame makes you turn away from the Lord. Just hang in there with us and let's walk through that and see what God has done and what grace looks like in that particular context of brokenness. So every one of these, these paragraphs down through here are a different avenue of brokenness and divorce is one of them. So before we get into the Matthew section, you know, the area of marriage and sexual ethics in the Old Testament is a very complex area of Jewish law. It's very complex. The Jews couldn't figure it out. By the time of Jesus, the Pharisees were divided. There were those that said that you can only, uh, when you read Deuteronomy in just a minute, you'll see it, that uh, only those uh, wives, wives who committed sexual immorality, you could divorce them. There were those that said you could divorce for any reason. Uh, Some of the rabbis even said you could even divorce them if they are no longer pleasing to the eye. Okay, And so the Jews were, the Pharisees, the Jewish leadership were scattered. This is a very complex area of Jewish law. i a taste of it just by reading some of these Old Testament passages for you. They'll be up on the screen. The first one is Deuteronomy 24. First four verses. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him, 
Now remember, this is part of the Mosaic Law. There's a lot of controversy around what that word displeasing means in, Jewish, uh, in the Jewish scholarship. So if a woman becomes displeasing to the husband because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, and if after she leaves his house she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from her house, his house, or if he dies, then the first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry again, marry her again after she's been defiled. Very strange language to our ears, isn't it? It's a culture that we, we don't live in. Um, by God's grace, he's redeemed a lot of this. And our laws have become much clearer. But boy, look at that. So divorce is allowed here. In Deuteronomy 24. So the man was allowed to divorce his wife for a variety of reasons. Or Deuteronomy 21. Now Deuteronomy 21, if a man... Uh, when you go to war against your enemies and the Lord your God delivers them into your hands, so we're talking about a foreign people, we're talking about foreign women now, keep that in mind, and you take captives. If you notice among the captives a beautiful woman and are attracted to her, you may take her as your wife. Bring her into your house and have her shave her head, trim her nails, and put aside the clothes she was wearing when captured. After she has lived in your house and mourned her father and mother for a full month, then you may go to her and be your husband, and she shall be your wife. And Look at the next section. If you are not pleased with her, let her go wherever she wishes. You must not sell her or treat her as a slave since you have dishonored her. So we're allowed to send away foreign wives. Okay, now, it's, when we read this, we're so kind of shocked by it because of our 20th century, uh, 21st century cultural ethics. This doesn't make sense to us. But if you actually are reading it carefully in the ancient culture, you see that this is a protection for the women. Because when you surround a, a, a city and you break, the, break through the walls and you kill the men, typically what happens first, you kill the men. Well, women are the loot. And the lust of war... You know what happens with men. And so God is putting in a provision that says you have to wait 30 days to have sex with this woman. That's a protection for the women. You can't just go wild. You can't do that. But you notice in the context of sexual ethics and marriage and remarriage and divorce, a divorce is allowed here. I actually preached on this many years ago. Deuteronomy 22, 23 to 27, another intriguing passage. Um, but if out in the country... A man happens to meet a young woman pledged to be married and rapes her. Uh, let's back up one. I want to start in the first section. If a man happens to meet in a town a virgin pledged to be married and he sleeps with her, you shall take them both to the gates of that town and stone them to death. You see, when you get engaged, the woman becomes the property of the engaged man, the husband. She's now his property. And so this is considered theft. And so you stone them. The young woman, because she was in a town and did not scream for help, and the man, because he violated another man's wife. You must purge the evil from among you. Now look at the second condition. But if out in the country a man happens to meet a young woman pledged to be married and rapes her, only the man who has done this shall die. Do nothing to the woman. She has committed no sin deserving of death. This case is like that of a common uh, of someone who attacks and murders a neighbor. And the man found the young woman out in the country. And though the betrothed woman screamed, there was no one to rescue her. Deuteronomy 22 verses 23 to 27. So the man was allowed to um, not allowed to sleep with the virgin who was pledged to be married. Because she's a property now of another man. 
And then Deuteronomy 22, verses 28 and 29. This is the very next paragraph. If a man happens to meet a virgin who is not her, and they are discovered, he shall pay her father 50 shekels of silver. He must marry the young woman, for he has violated her. He can never divorce her for as long as he lives. So the man here was allowed to sleep with a virgin, not a pledge to be married, but was required to permanently marry her. Boy, this goes so against our own sense of ethics, doesn't it? But when you put it back in the first century world, you can see how God is connecting with them in their world and beginning to put in place things that protect the woman. Because in every other country, a nation surrounding them, if a man raped a virgin, it's no big deal. You weren't required to marry them. Here you are. And so God is putting in place human dignity and taking care of the people, even though it's wrong. And this gets addressed later in Scripture. So the Pharisees, that just gives you a sample of, of how complex Uh, And sometimes unclear sexual ethics and marriage questions and divorce questions were in the Old Testament. There's there's more. I just gave you some of them. So the Pharisees could not agree on the grounds for divorce. Okay, they had no problem with the procedure. But what was the grounds for divorce? So you will notice in all those passages that the man was allowed to divorce. All those are written to the man. You see, under Jewish law, the woman was not allowed to divorce the man. The husband. Only the man could divorce. The woman could petition the court to force a divorce, but the man could initiate it and make it happen. In light of this, the man carried all the power, but the law was still providing protection for the woman every step of the way, even though the man had the power. So following the Jewish pattern, cultural pattern, Jesus now in this passage today, Matthew five thirty one and 32, he addresses the husband. So this is Matthew five thirty one and 32. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So Jesus is now moving from the heart in adultery in the last passage to divorce behavior in this passage. Last Sunday was in the heart, adultery. This Sunday is on the behavior. So I've asked more than once over the years in ministry, um, I've asked some of you actually, so a husband's having an affair, all right? Uh, one, one year from today, you're going to be uh, divorced. Living, you're going to be paying a bunch of your pay to, another, to your former wife. Uh, you're no longer going to be with her. You're now going to see your children only part of the time. I begin to describe it, and I ask the question, is that worth this other woman? Is she really worth that? It's a stunning to me the number of times they say no. No, she's not. I actually had the chance recently to ask that of a woman down in Denver who I know who, uh, who is involved in an affair, and I asked her that question. Is it worth that losing your husband and children? She said, I don't want to lose my husband and children. I said, then you've got a lot of work to do. You have a lot of work to do because adultery always leads to divorce if we don't step in and help. Porphy leads to divorce if we don't step in and help. And so um, <clears throat> Jesus is addressing the husband, but he's moving it now from the heart to the actual behavior of divorce. And he's taken all these Old Testament passages and concepts and he's begun to focus them down into one very hard statement. Except for sexual immorality. Don't want to lose track of that. Don't want to lose track of that. Do not be deceived. 
Divorce is not God's plan. Sometimes it happens. We'll talk about that. It will happen sometimes. But it is not God's intention. So let's don't do what culture does and normalize it. Let's leave it where it belongs and show grace. I'll come back to that in a minute. In the process of focusing it down, Jesus does several things. He brings correctives or redemption, if you will, to the very broken world of the first century and the Jewish law and what's happening. Corrective number one, uh, the first thing he does is he's challenging easy divorce. He's challenging that. No, you can't get divorced for any reason. In the ancient world, divorce was exclusively the right of the husband. Jesus is now limiting divorce options while at the same time bringing protection to the woman. Because in a world where the woman has very few options and the husband can divorce her for any reason, that leaves her out in the cold. The further back you go, the only option she had available to her was largely prostitution. And so by divorcing your wife, you're pushing her into a place where she wasn't designed to be, which is probably why it says that you make her the victim of adultery. And so what Jesus is doing now is limiting the divorce options. You see, the certificate of divorce referred to in this passage was a legal document where the husband relinquished the rights over the woman because he was property. That's how they still thought. He's relinquishing the rights. She's free to go. Really what he's saying is he's free to remarry. But instead now, divorcing for any reason... Uh, instead of divorcing for any reason, the man can only divorce for sexual immorality. So he's protecting the woman by bringing it down to one condition. Can't just do what some of the Pharisees said. She's not very pleasing to the eye, so I'm done with her. No, it doesn't work that way. We're going to get into why in just a moment. Corrective number two, in Jesus' teachings on divorce, he's also moving to protect the woman in a different way and give her similar rights. I just said that the woman could not initiate divorce. We're not going to read it, but in Mark chapter 10, when the Pharisees uh, challenged Jesus' view on divorce, he has a very stunning statement. In verse 12, he says, If the wife divorces the husband... That's a stunning statement in the first century world because uh, the wife under Jewish law was not allowed to divorce the husband. And he's making the assumption that she was able to initiate divorce. I think the NIV here in chapter 5 of Matthew is correct in translating it, makes her the victim of adultery. She's the one who is suffering the, uh, the price. You see, the man is not creating a clean slate, if you will. That's not what's happening. He's not creating a clean slate. Whew, I gave her a certificate of divorce. I relinquish my rights. I'm free to go on to the next woman. Rather, remarrying another woman is an act of adultery against his former wife. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's committing a sin against this woman. Corrective number three, Jesus is now arguing for monogamy as opposed to polygamy. You see, in the Old Testament, men were allowed to engage in sexual relations with other women. Everybody except another man's wife. Because women were considered property. Prostitutes, mistresses, many wives, slaves, virgins not engaged to be married. And so polygamy was not seen as adultery. Now it is. The identification and, and recreation or redefinition of marriage uh, as adultery against one woman is moving us, the culture, to where God originally intended us to be. Monogamy. One man, one woman. That was his plan all along. 
Okay, so what do we make of all this? That's really the big question. What do we make of all this? Well, it's very easy to get caught up in the divorce, remarriage, adultery discussion because it is complex, it's not easy, especially the processing of how we handle it in church. I don't want to go there. I'll tell you about what I think in just a minute. What I want to do is take a step back and see what Jesus is actually doing. The very first thing he's doing is is showing how deeply important the marriage relationship is in the kingdom. He's highlighting it by eliminating all this confusion, casting the net very wide and focusing it down to one area. He's showing us that this is a very important part of the kingdom. He's navigating between easy divorce and and. Uh, abuse of women. He's trying to navigate down that road while we bring in righteousness, the righteousness of God. I said in the beginning, remember that the righteousness of God, God is a very demanding God. He demands righteousness. He demands 100% righteousness, which leaves us all out in the cold, which opens the door through forgiveness and atonement on the cross grace, in other words. And so Jesus, is, he's trying to navigate that messy world and bring it down to this one area. It's very important. He's now showing us that marriage is a core part of God's plan and one of our major expressions of commitment to the living God. In Matthew 19, similar to Mark 10, when the Pharisees challenged Jesus on divorce, here's what he said. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, no one separate. Matthew 19, 4 through 6. So his argument to the, his defense to the Pharisees is to root it all the way back in the creation account. All the way back. For this reason. What reason? You ever think about that? What reason? Paul uses this in Ephesians 5, by the way. The reason is that we are made in the image of God. We are meant to be together in relationship. That's the reason it's rooted. And Paul adds further to it. The reason is because this is now our testimony before the world. So why is the handling of divorce so important to the church and in the kingdom today? A couple of thoughts. One is it demonstrates forgiveness. It's amazing how many divorced people have a hard time forgiving their former spouse. You have to remember, hear this carefully, whatever your former spouse sinned, however they sinned against you, is no greater than how you sinned against them. It takes two. And forgiveness is almost unbearable for many people. But done well in the context of grace, when you begin to see forgiveness then we have a model that the world has never seen. Which brings up the second principle of reconciliation. I've said to many divorced people, spouses, especially if you have children, on whether or not you have children, it doesn't matter, but especially with young children, it is in your best interest to repair the relationship even if the divorce is final. The world doesn't know how to do that. They understand anger, hostility, vengeance, bitterness. They understand that. But they don't understand reconciliation, genuine reconciliation and forgiveness. So why are healthy marriages so important to the kingdom? Let's turn around and ask it the right way, because that's really where I want to focus. By the grace of God, divorce is a very small 
part ongoing of our church. Yes, many of you are divorced, but it hasn't been part of our church life. So why is a healthy marriage important to the kingdom? Let me answer that with a couple of questions. What if marriage is more about our holiness than our happiness? What if God's design is that marriage is more about holiness, our holiness, our transformation into the image of Christ? There are three terms used that in the scriptures related to marriage. Covenant, one flesh, image of God. The whole concept of one flesh is real important to answer this question. If we can answer those three questions well, we have, we have framed out a theology of Christian marriage. So if, if marriage is more about our holiness, what role does one flesh play? One flesh certainly involves a physical coming together. There's no question about it. That's the flesh part. But the one, the word one is the far more important part of that phrase. That's the same word used to describe the Trinity. You see, what happens with one flesh is that when we are brought together with somebody else, that facilitates our transformation into the image of Christ, the very thing we don't want. Nobody knows me better than Nancy. And the greatest gift God has given me is a woman that looks me in the eyes and says, why are you doing that? I've, some of, I've told you, some of you, the story. Many, many, many years ago, when we were early married, newly married, I was working in internal auditing for a public service company. Nancy came home from the store one day and brought me a package of pins. I know, it's so funny. She can't remember it. I never forgot it. She handed me these pins. I said, what are the pins for? She goes, well, go put them in your desk. And I said, well, they give me pins at work. And she says, yeah, really? What does the pin say? Pull it out. So I pull it out. It says, property of public service company for official use only. I said, really? I use a quarter of an ink, quarter's worth of ink every year at home, and I never forget a word. That's all your integrity's worth to you? A quarter? She's calling me on the carpet for the tiniest area of lack of integrity. And she was right. So I took the pins in. Some of you may think legalism, legal. No, don't think that at all. Took the pins in, put them in my desk drawer, forgot about it. Two months later, my office is at the opposite end of the building than my wife's. I'm not my wife's, my boss. And she comes down now and she said, hey, I forgot a pen. Can I borrow a pen? Sure. So I open my drawer and she goes, what are you doing with all these pens? We supply pens. Yeah, I know. Said, uh, Nancy got me some pens at the store because I don't pay attention when I'm using the company pen and when I'm not. So this way, if you're okay, just keep CD. And she goes, oh yeah, that's fine. And she, she's not a Christian. She goes walking out. She stops at the door for a few seconds and she turns around and she says, that's why I promoted you three times. Because I trust you in the tiniest things. If you're going to sell out, go for $10 million. <laughs> Don't do it for a quarter. Okay, and that's one of the key purposes of marriage is the one flesh. The one flesh where we're becoming moving closer to closer as we move toward Christ. And we play that role in each other's lives. And we hate it. We hate being called on the carpet by our spouses, don't we? I know I do. Maybe you're different. <laughs> but she's, 99% of the time, she's right. She's probably right the 1% too. <laughs> okay, here's the second question. So if the first question is, what if marriage is more about our holiness and our happiness? What if marriage is the beginning of our testimony about God? 
What if it's the very first step in our testimony in a broken world about God? The other two terms, image of God and covenant. The image of God, when we relate together as husband and wife in a marriage that's growing, you know what happens? We reveal the Trinity in a very tangible way to a world that can't see the Trinity. How else can they observe who the true, true God is except by looking at our marriages and watching us do what they find almost impossible to do? Image of God is a very important part of that. The second one word is the word covenant. When we commit ourselves to each other, no matter how much the other one sins, we begin to reveal to the broken world what it looks like for God to covet himself, covenant himself to us. And that's what communion is all about. You know, it was a startling statement when Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. For a, st- for a time when women were considered property, sacrifice 100% for your wife. For this reason, he goes on and says, a man shall leave his mother and father. Because this is the first statement of our testimony right here. And it demonstrates what covenant really looks like. That God covenants himself to us no matter how much we sin. Oh, he knows how to work with us. He doesn't mind doing the hard work. But he doesn't abandon us. Remember the beginning, the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Pharisees are all about rules and laws. When can I get away with it? When can I not? Jesus is saying, wipe all that away. Have a good marriage. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, very last thing of chapter 5, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. God is demanding the impossible. He's not making it hard. He's not making it challenging. He's making it impossible. He's demanding the impossible. That means we have no hope except for the cross. We will always support, always, always healthy marriages. We'll never water that down. It'll always be true of our church. But we'll always show grace to those who struggle. There's uh, three groups of you out there. There are those whose marriages are going well. Praise God for that. There are those of you whose marriages are in trouble and you're heading for that cliff. Don't be satisfied with that. Come get help. And there are those of you that have already went off the cliff and now you're divorced and maybe remarried. Then enjoy the grace. Enjoy the grace. We will always show grace. But we should always work towards God's standards because this is the primary means by which he reveals himself to a broken world. Father, thank you for, once again, for your goodness. We, we know of you to be, as Jonah said, a gracious and merciful God, showing love and compassion. And we are the grateful recipients of that. Thank you. It doesn't matter where we are in our marriages. We all have experienced your grace. And for that, we, we just show gratitude. In your son's name, amen.